1: Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com.
3: Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on TV. Terms and restrictions apply.
4: Hello and welcome to From the Rookery End, a podcast about Watford FC brought to you by The Athletic. My name is John, and on this Sunday morning, the day after Watford won three two at home to Coventry City is Mike. Uh, very good morning to you, John. Good morning, everybody. And good morning, Jason. Good morning, America. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 yes, they're waking up finally because, you know, you know, Watford were the pollsters' choice to beat Coventry and, and took the lead <laughs> rightly so. Uh, but two goals from the Sky Blues made people say, hey, maybe Coventry could do what was needed to win this. But Pennsylvania came through with a deciding result and Ishmael Azar for the second game in a row, got the winning goal for Watford. <laughs> wait for it, wait for it. Mike, that first half performance... Were Watford biding their time
5: before they were going to score? <laughs> yes, they had to, uh, to wait to trump Coventry, didn't they, in the end? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that... Um, oh, by the way, that will be the last um, election-related... Absolutely related. done. Uh, uh, yes, just uh, if anyone's about to turn off, don't. Yeah, it was... Uh, I just tried to describe the game to... I've got a Coventry-supporting friend, and I described it as a bit of a, a cure-its-egg because it was... It's difficult to work out really whether Watford actually deserved it. How well Coventry played. It was it was a funny old game. But yeah, that first that first half, John, you mentioned biding their time, showing a bit of patience, and I think they had to because. It really was interesting. I think there was good things and not so good things about, about that first half. Coventry, I thought, had the better chances. Biamu should have scored with a with a header and then Caboselli, um put in a, a magnificent last-ditch tackle, perfectly timed, uh, perfectly positioned to, to stop him scoring when it looked like he was going to. So Cov had probably two decent chances to score. But Watford did, in flashes, show the quality they have. And this is what I, I feel going into virtually every championship game. Watford have... Hands down, without any shadow of a doubt, the quality on the pitch, and I think the two that shine shone through in patches in that first half were um, were, were Kiko and, and Saar. Little touches, little bits, little glimpses that you could see that they were they were a cut above. But largely speaking, it was. It was quite a difficult watch. Right from the get go, you could hear. I'm not sure if it was it was Kiko, uh, if it was Vladimir Rivic or or someone else on the on the bench shouting tempo, tempo, tempo. Because again, that was that was missing from from the play. And it, but a couple of times there was there was some lovely stuff early on. There's a great early cross from from Saar and Gray buzzing into the box just 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 didn't get there in time which was good. Um a lovely a lovely bit of chasing skill from Gray. He got a ball into the box and there was one wonderful bit where he got the ball in midfield, swung it out wide and they got a cross in. And it was the the simplest bit of football, but it was almost poetic there was almost you could hear one of those moments when you hear the orchestra singing behind you look look how simple football can be they got it out wide to ken semmer he swung a ball in i thought that's it it's not rocket science is it get it wide get it into the box really difficult to put to put my finger on it as you can tell all over the place there a little bit it was it was an odd first half that was encouraging in some ways Frustrating in others and and mildly concerning in in others because because like I say, Koff had a couple of really good chances. I thought
2: it was a bit odd. In that I thought from the kickoff we seemed to have the tempo there, and it lasted for all of about two minutes, and then it sort of <laughs> lulled back into a traditional
5: this season first half Watfordy type performance, didn't it? It had an odd feel about it. It's obviously very quiet at the games anyway, but this one felt even even more so. It was there was not much talking going on the pitch. It was played in almost complete silence um you know we've had previous games where the opposition coach is very very noisy opposition players are noisy we know we haven't got many huge talkers on the Watford pitch I think Foster and and Troost are, are really the only ones that, that that make themselves make themselves known but it did feel desperately desperately quiet it was just you know sometimes it just happens like that you can't explain it there's no reason for it. and it was it was quite noticeable
4: the second half, though, oh, the second half had some things in it, didn't it? Five goals in just one half of football. We've seen seven before, but five was pretty good going. Jason, it started uh, very quickly with Watford's goal. King Ken, we have to call him that now. Um, the magical Ken Simar uh, on the charge as he has been uh, doing pretty much all the work before Andre Gregg sort of bumbled the goal in. Uh, the impact, though, that Ken has had on the last two games, for me, Jason, is really balancing up. That attack on the left and the right with him and Anishmaila.
2: Yeah, it does. I think if you look certainly first half, Saar often had two men on him, yeah. which as we've seen in previous games, if we if we focus our attack down that right hand side, focus it on, on pumping balls up to Saar for him to run onto, then that yeah, it it's it becomes predictable. So we need something down that left hand side to to balance things out. If you're talking about the goal. Um, it was superb from Ken. I think it was a it was a it was a Kapu ball from Capoo, wasn't it? That, that
5: <laughs> set him
2: away. But he still had Coventry defender in close attendance. The touch to mm. take the ball down was one thing that was superb, and it always it took it down and into the into the box, and away he went. That 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 beat the defender with that touch. Still had work to do. Then getting along the the byline away from the. Uh, the defenders that that came to to close him down and then put the uh put the ball into the uns- uh, the uh, corridor of uncertainty as uh, our cricketing friends will tell us it was it was in an area that made it really really difficult to defend um it's not going to be a candidate for goal of the season but because of where that ball was put it it ended up in the back of the net there was very little that Coventry could do to defend it 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 took the keeper out of the game the keeper had had to go i think near post because uh, of where Ken Semmer was. He needed to cover his near post. Ball's gone beyond him and just made it really difficult for, for Coventry to defend it. It, it. it was a bit unclean, a bit dirty. Not sure what part of Andre it went in off. But they all count. 1-0 Watford.
4: I said it was about, I'll take that. I'll absolutely take that at that point. One goal, whatever it is, I'll, I'll sort of take it.
5: I, I was thinking in the in the first half, how do we unlock Ismail Assar? He, you know, he wasn't getting the ball to run onto too. He's getting it from a standing start too many times. It makes it difficult. Now that was no one's fault really, because as Jason said, he was he was double double man the, the virtually the whole time. But it quickly became apparent that the key to unlocking, not necessarily Ismail Assar so much, but the game itself was Ken Semmer, because whilst they focused on, on Ismail Assar on the right, I thought it was interesting that he didn't switch over. We've seen him switch sides a, a couple of times, Ishmael Assar, in, in games, and that's, that's caused a bit of havoc. We didn't, we didn't get that so much yesterday. But yeah, it quickly became apparent that the key to unlocking the game really was, was basically Ken Semmer. As as Jason said, his touch throughout was absolutely fantastic. He was bringing down ball after ball after ball, and he thought whenever he took on um, the, the the right back or whoever was defending, he said, well, he's not going to get past him again. But he did, and I, I, it was just an absolutely terrific performance from from Ken and He is looking increasingly important to this to this Watford side from from an attacking point of view. Certainly,
4: I love how he controls, but also goes with the ball straight away. He doesn't yeah. need like two touches. It's Control and go. Uh, and that's what's just going to put lots of uh, right-backs uh, under pressure. But the, the, yeah, the first goal was from Andre. And I, I, I don't, I, I'm trying to judge him on this game. But I, I find it hard. Because, hmm. yes, it was not an amazing goal. But it's, a, it's the sort of place where you want him to be and the sort of pressure you want him being put on a defence. But there was a, after, it was after 2-2. And he had a one-on-one chance. And he hit it straight at the keeper. At least it felt that way. And I know I'm, I'm adding up all the things that we've had from Andre and the frustrations we've had. On Quest on, on five, Kevin Phillips said, you know, he's a great striker at this level. He's going to be important for Watford. It was hard for me to feel that, especially after a moment like that. Am I just being
2: silly, Jason? Well, the chance, if we talk about the chance, if you look at it, he opens his body up so much. So the way he runs at the ball before he strikes it, he's telling the goalkeeper where he's going to put it. He's like, I'm not going to hit this with his left. I'm not confident enough to hit it with my left foot. I'm going to hit it with my right foot, so you probably know where it's going to go. There you go, save it. Perhaps there is a bit of a confidence thing there, which is a shame after he's... I mean, you talk about strikers that lack confidence and need a goal, and you say they need one to go in off their arse. That potentially is where his first goal went in off yesterday. So to then sort of have a a chance so soon afterwards and not take it, he'll be disappointed with that. And we know he has got it in him to to be able to score those. So hopefully he'll, uh, he'll come back and sort of learn from that. But you made a good point about his positioning. We've talked previously about some of the crosses that have been going into the box where we have done well down the flanks and we... Either haven't made the right decisions or we're putting the ball somewhere where we're expecting a striker to be and they're not there. Now, Andre Gray was getting into those positions generally yesterday. There was one in the second half where he sort of ran at the near post, the defenders tracked him and and got there first and uh, and put the ball out for a corner. But it's sort of reassuring to see him getting into those positions because you do that and eventually one will go in. He might need a lot of chances, but we're getting a lot of crosses into the box, so you hope that comes. Um, and Mike's already mentioned as well um, an aspect of his play that we haven't perhaps seen so much of before in the first half, where nice little bit of skill, he's sort of caught the defender, the the, the fullback a bit flat-footed when he's sort of gone into the left channel, beaten him on the byline and, uh, and put a cross in for... Which, if, he, if he'd been ironically running onto the end of that cross, perhaps he'd yeah. have been there to put it in the back <laughs> of the net as well. Yes, could have done better, but for his first start, yeah not not so bad not not too disappointed um
5: and hopefully we'll get better
2: from from here on in
5: I want to go into bat for him quite strongly here he, he looked busy he looked motivated he looked focused he, he he was desperate for the ball he was making runs and I said not many players were, were vocal but he was shouting for it and he was after a move broke down he was sort of deconstructing it via shouting to, to whoever misplaced the pass or whatever he was he was making those runs and really you know that I loved that that early chance where the ball in from Saar and, and and Gray just arrived a couple of you know it was a couple of inches too too late wasn't he a split second too late to, to turn it in he he did he got it right for for his second goal and and could well have scored three so he could have had a hat trick so as strikers what you want to see is them getting into position to do it because that's really where we've been lacking players turning up at the right time um, in in the box to to give themselves a chance of scoring and he did that twice he didn't quite do it once once he did and, and really that's what you want want from a striker and I just desperately hope I, yeah, I saw him when when Troy was getting ready to come on and you could see his sort of shoulders went down a little bit he thought, you know he, he knew his after afternoon was, was over, but I, I really hope that he takes confidence from that. I thought he looked strong, he looked really up for it. And I thought the positions he got into were were great. I think we could we can hope to see a lot from, from Andre Grey this season if if that's anything to go by. I thought it was I thought it was a great performance and probably deserved a little bit more than, than he got. We had a very crazy Three minutes at one point in the game, Coventry scored two, What forgot the
4: equaliser, we'll talk about that one in a minute, but Mike, the, the two Coventry goals, firstly, what, I don't know what the adjective is, surprising, uh, hopeful, <laughs> crazy, spectacular goal, uh, first goal for a 25-yard header from Coventry, just caught Ben off his line, but Ben wasn't you know, dawdling off his line. He was doing right. what you're meant to do. And it was yeah. it was a lucky goal. But it, 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 it's the impact that's more important about that goal.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I think just in the lead up to the goal, but after Watford scored, Coventry lost their shape and their discipline a little bit. And I thought, right, we need to capitalise here. We really need to put our foot on their neck and, and finish them off. And they weren't able to do that. And, and one of the sort of hallmarks of, of Watford in the last couple of games has been that, We've scored three goals, but we've also conceded two. Now, from for us as supporters, we've talked about how entertaining these games are or are not over over the course of the season these have definitely been more uh, entertaining but the, the 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 shape has been been a little bit looser at the back, and we 've been looked a little bit uh, more porous at the back and This was another example of that, and as you say, John, I think the Hamer header was a a combination of factors that you you run that model ninety nine times out of a hundred, and that 's never going to happen i think if if Ben Foster is one step back he he takes a step forward just as Hamer runs onto the ball uh, and it, and then it 's all too late he, he, the trajectory is and, and the speed of the uh, the ball is perfect to get it over Foster's head. So it was fluke is a bit harsh, but it basically was. It was just a, a, a series of unfortunate events that ended up with it with it on the back in the back of the net. Foster's positioning slightly off but ninety nine times out of a hundred he gets away with it. You think, ah, right. He's kind of just chalked that one up. It's like, well, that's really disappointing, bit frustrating, but but let's move on. And and Watford really didn't. And I think they they have a propensity to do this. I think I spoke about Christian Cabaselli a couple of weeks ago where he made a mistake and his head went down and he really needed to be jolted out of it. For two or three minutes, he was really sort of mulling it over in his head and I think his, 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 he, he made a rash, rash challenge straight after. And I thought the way Watford reacted to, to this sort of bit of adversity with, the, with, with that unique header, as you call it, John, was pretty poor for a side that we you know we've we've lauded them for being well organized and, and and sticking to their shape well they just didn't do that really for for from the kickoff did they and less than a minute later they they were 2-1 behind it was a lovely strike but right-footed into the into the bottom left-hand corner Foster no chance for that one but I think it's the way that Watford reacted to going behind that that allowed Coventry in and that for me was was slightly disappointing in the context of the game in the context of the season that that was a slight concern for me just the way Watford reacted to to, to shipping that that odd equaliser and it, it was so so important with that in mind that they they hit back hit back and got the equaliser quickly because it would have been interesting. Uh, to see where the game had gone. Had they not done that, I probably think Cov would have held on if they'd have showed a bit of composure there. But yeah, just a slight niggle, slight concern about how they reacted to the equaliser for me.
4: Well, what we got an equaliser uh, to make it 2-2 uh, from William uh header, set-piece. Uh, which is amazing, it came from a corner, uh, and you do love a, a, a good center half getting his head on a ball and scoring a goal from a corner, uh, but I suppose it's, the corner Jason came from James Garner, who had uh, you know hasn 't started for a while a uh, part of a midfield that 's fairly fluid in terms of who starts the game. He had a great game though,
2: yeah, it was decent and he 's probably under a little bit of pressure to put performance in because i see he was he was signed online from United before the the deadline day where we still weren 't sure what the whereabouts of Kapu and Hughes would be. And now they're both still here. Hughes is working his way back from injury. Garner's opportunities may now be a bit more limited. So he probably felt that he had to put a performance in yesterday to uh, to justify his start in the team and to try and earn himself a place in the team moving forwards. And I think he did that. He, the set pieces you've mentioned, we, we've heard about and we've seen and we know what he can do in terms of those. Uh, there was one in the first half where he sort of whips one in into a dangerous area that, that Cabaselli perhaps could have done a bit more with. Um, and then that one in the second half, a corner that, that, that beats the first man is a, is a joy to see, isn't it for us Watford fans? It mm-hmm. um, got us the goal. But it wasn't just that. For for me, I was quite impressed at the way he was linking up with Kiko and Saar. We talked about Saar being man marked out of the game by a couple of players on occasions. He Got involved in the play down the right hand side, which sort of helped that, which gave them something else to to think about. Um, just sort of some yeah, some nice little triangles between him, uh, Kiko and Saar that sort of kept play moving down the right hand side. And also, his sort of passing and just sort of general technical ability. The the one I think that stood out for me there was a little move down the right hand side where he sort of played a first time back heel through the or sort of between the the Coventry defenders to 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 get the ball in behind them. And I thought we generally, we'd we'd struggled a bit with that yesterday. I thought, so in comparison to Coventry, Coventry were trying that sort of play the ball in between our centre backs and and at times doing that quite successfully. Whereas we tried to play a a few balls between full back and centre back and it didn't quite come off quite a few times. But Garner did seem to to be okay. Carrying that move out, and the one that little back heel was just a, a a joy to behold, a lovely little move. And if it had ended up in a goal, we'd be uh, waxing lyrical about that for, for time to come. The finale of the game, Mike,
4: came and started in the 74th minute with the entrance of one Troy Deeney and his 400th appearance for the club. Now, you, you're at the games, you're working there for Opta, you've seen him there a, a couple of times, he's been on the bench the last two games. You know, he, d- he didn't have his infinity stone. Of the crowd to play off and to rile to them up. But what kind of impact did you see him make? And have you seen him make when he's at the game and he's on the bench?
5: Yeah, when he when he's part of the squad, it's noticeable. Um, Troy is, as probably you might expect, is is very vocal from the bench, very very positive. I think there's the odd bit of banter that that comes uh, from him to, to, towards the pitch, but but largely speaking, there's lots and lots of uh, encouragement, and that probably doesn't come as a surprise to anyone. But but you'd be surprised how quiet some benches are it's quite noticeable how how some turn up and are really vocal and they they've they've obviously been drilled to get to get behind the team and others just sit sit there a bit more passively and and watch it and I think Watford in the main are a slightly more passive group when they're when they're watching it it might be different away from home it might be worth asking Adam about that so Troy is is very very noticeable with his with his vocal encouragement and I really like that I said earlier how quiet it is I think you know, players are human beings. We spoke about Sean Murray in the in the week and, and how easy it is to forget that these, these people are normal guys like, like you or I. They they thrive on encouragement. We always feel better when we hear someone cheering our name or saying well done. So I'd like to probably see more more vocality. Vocality is that a word? Louder people on the on the pitch for, for Watford. But also in the in the in the on the bench as well. I think they've got a, a role to play. Whether um Ivich has, has asked them not to, I'm not sure, but uh it's a bit basic but a bit agricultural but I'd like to hear more from from the bench and it's I like, I like it with with Troy making himself known because then the players know that he's around as well both the opposition as well and as we saw when he came on he is uh, he's going to be a handful in this in this division isn't he you did mention it but I have to say 400th appearance for Watford what an in- incredible incredible achievement it really is um and it crept up on us a, a little bit didn't it but 400 games is a lot and he had been there for for a decade and the the stuff that we've seen you know we've had a front row seat for for most of it it's been quite a journey for Watford in the last decade but a, but a, an incredible journey for for Troy Deeney and and for him to sort of turn up um looking fit lean and mean on his 400th appearance uh, yesterday was um it was it was big i was sort of not emotional i think that's the wrong word but i sort of felt quite quite proud of, uh, of Troy for what, what he's achieved. And it just felt like a, a key moment. So I did want to just sort of say congratulations uh, to, to Troy Deeney on that. It's uh, bearing in mind the context of the last decade, everything Watford have been through, everything Troy Deeney's been through. So for him to take the field for his 400th appearance, I think is, is something worth worth noting and, and, and us congratulating him for brilliant stuff. It was a big moment for him and it would have been even
4: bigger if he'd scored the winning penalty. Mm-hmm. But he didn't take it. I mean, that was the thing. The minute you oh, choice taking it, hang on, he's not taking it. Ishmael is taking it. That's the. Th- I, I suppose it just comes down to the fact that you know that was a decision that was made beforehand. If there was a penalty, he'd be taking it. That's the way you make decisions sometimes in teams. But Jason, at any point in that run up, did you sort of go, "Oh no," with Ishmael before he took that penalty?
2: <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Um, Going back to your point about him not taking the penalty, I think you're right. It probably is just the fact that he didn't start the game. The decision would have been taken before the game as to who takes the penalty, regardless of, of substitutions. Uh, and if they'd said Sarr, so, then sar so be it. But yeah, that I, I hate a short run-up. They just they just make me nervous. And, and that little sort of pause as well. Do you remember, um, was it Marvin Sordell took that penalty at home to, to Leeds? when he did that little stutter step and we missed a penalty in in the final minute and then Leeds went up in injury time and scored an equalizer that is still in my memory clearly <laughs> and and any sort of yeah any sort of short run up or or stuttering step just makes me very very nervous and part of that is probably is the fact that we know that when Deeney does take a penalty he's nothing like that he runs up and he smacks it and <laughs> we know what we're getting with Troy whereas we're, we're always obviously a little bit uncomfortable when we see something different, and yeah, I was I was very nervous. But he sent the keeper the wrong way. He put it right in the corner, perfect penalty, and a lot better. If anyone's seen Adamola Lookman's penalty from <laughs> Fulham in the in the uh, with the last kick of the game yesterday, then well, yeah, we've got we've got a lot to be thankful to be thankful for.
4: <laughs> well, the last two penalties, the last two games, two different penalty takers, but both what you call more, they were Place well taken penalties, placed well other side of the goal from where the goalkeeper's going just not the wham bam thank you man that we're used to with Troy Deeney. Now Jason I suppose one player we need to talk about um, he he came on a substitution we were quite excited about him and he had a great impact uh, earlier on in this season. Jeremy Ngakia came on and got a chance to show off he's been on the bench recently and hasn't been getting any game time but Kiko got a a yellow card and it seemed to be precautionary to take him off uh, and to put Jeremy on but Jason he had impact straight away.
2: Yeah, he did, and um, he, he hasn't been getting game time probably because Kiko has been so good down the right-hand side, and if if there's any option to deploy Ngakia as a left-wing back instead, then obviously we've been talking about how good Ken's been, so he's he's been a bit unfortunate not to get a, a look here. Um, but then I think we can quantify his performance yesterday by starting talking about Kiko, because whereas Kiko has been good, yesterday he was tested defensively and wasn't quite up to that test. Uh, the lad Giles down the left wing for for uh, Coventry was very, very good and he had the beating of, of Kiko time and time again and sort of the the final curtain was that act uh, over a few minutes in the second half. You, you talked about the booking. Just before that, Giles had very, very easily drifted past him. It was literally a little drop of the shoulder, completely sold Kiko one way, caught him off balance and it, and he just sort of ghosted past him with ease and, and the yellow cards followed soon after as the experienced head of Kiko decided yeah you're not going to do that to me again I'm going to hack you down and, and that was it that was that was uh, Kiko off the pitch shortly after that with Ngakia coming on and that changed that pattern of play down that left hand side uh, Giles really got a, a chance to to shine after that and Gekia had him wrapped up pretty well uh from from that point on, I think he gave away one one free kick, but generally um it was a, a solid defensive performance in that position when it was needed when we were when we were three two up and we we talked about the defensive shakiness in the middle, what we needed was uh a bit of a bit of stability in defense and Ngekia bought that
5: I actually thought that having gone. I know Watford went three-two up relatively late. There was what four minutes of added time, so they had to play out what twelve, twelve minutes or so after they went ahead. But I actually thought Watford did that admirably, and and I said earlier on that, that this Watford side is full of quality. You look, actually look at the team sheet, you look at the team, you wouldn't. That's that's almost a Premier. It wouldn't be. You wouldn't raise an eyebrow if that if we played that team in the Premier League. But I thought the quality really came to the fore the way they saw the game out. Um, And, and, you know, Etienne Capoue was able to sort of, you know, Coventry tiring a little bit and Etienne Capoue is exactly the wrong sort of player you want to be playing against. He can just sort of nip in, take the ball and then lope up the pitch with it, get it into the corner and and Troy and Ken can can stay in the corner there, just mother the ball, babysit the ball a little bit. And I I thought Watford were, as as badly as they reacted to that first goal, I thought the way they reacted to see the game out was was very, very professional and they showed their experience, showed their, their quality someone who hasn't got the experience is Jeremy Ngacu and I thought as you said, as you both said, he was he was absolutely terrific and could probably count himself a little bit unlucky. He was one of the, the shining stars of the early games. Uh, but for him to be able to come on and add that solidity from about the hour mark was it was about yeah it was about sort of twenty minutes to go I guess when he came came on. It was it was great and, and really encouraging. That last sort of chunk of the game after the 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 two two goal wobble was was pretty impressive I thought and um, it's yeah, it's just it's just nice to feel confident in in a good squad. It felt like a bit more of a balanced sort of squad yesterday, didn't it? You look at who's on the bench and Gaki, Adini, Pedro, Chalabar, Quina, and Sierra There's uh, we obviously haven't seen anything of the, the the latter really yet, but there's there's options there, aren't there? Exciting options, sensible options, and and defensive options. Um, so I thought, whilst it was an up and down game. Again, uh, Vladimir Ivic managed it pretty well, thought the substitutions were sensible uh, and probably did what they were intended to do. What we've often said this season is that the players need to translate what they work on in, in training. They need to translate the instructions that Ivic gives them onto the pitch because it's felt like there's been a bit of a disconnect with that, certainly from what Vladimir Ivic has been saying post-match, and I know he wasn't 100% satisfied with yesterday, but what they did do, having got their noses in front against an admittedly tiring Coventry, I thought they did pretty, pretty well there. It was I quite enjoyed watching that sort of final 10 minutes, which is not something I say very often watching Watford when they're, when they're ahead.
4: And they can all have a rest, because it's time for the international break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an
2: NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. From the Rookery End, a podcast about life
4: following Watford FC. Mike's surname is Parkin. Here's a son called Arlo. And we like to get his views on From the Rooker End in our feature, Michael Parkinson.
5: It gives me great pleasure to welcome once again to Michael Parkinson. It's Arlo. Arlo, how are you doing? Good. Nice. Glad to hear it. Pleased with Watford's victory against Coventry yesterday. How did you feel about that? Nervous. Yeah, nervous. Now, someone who will have been nervous will have been Ishmael Assar, who stood up to take the winning penalty, as it turned out. Now, did you, you saw he had a little bit of a stutter... When he ran up, he did a little bit of a Pogba approach to take his penalty and that left a few of us Watford supporters nervous. If you were going to take a penalty towards the end of the game for Watford, how would you do it? What would be your technique? Just go for power. Go for power, like Troy? Yeah. And speaking of Troy, 400 appearances for Watford yesterday. He's been playing for Watford longer than you've been alive. How do you feel about, about Troy Deeney? Can you sum it up? Good. Good? Anything else?
3: No, just Good.
5: Pretty good. can't ask for fairer than that. Arlo, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing one of your powerful penalties at Vicarage Road soon. Bye. The Brigadier, well that's what we
4: call him, Colin, who you've heard on the podcast many, many times. Uh, He's an actor, a professional actor, Uh, but he's also a writer because he's written and narrated the latest episode of Hornet Heaven. It's wonderful. It's one of the Hornet Heavens that makes you feel good about being a Watford fan. It's set in 1882. Here's a little clip. You can go to hornetheaven.com or go to your podcast app and find Hornet Heaven and download this episode right now.
1: Giancarlo kneels in front of Charlie and removes his black plimsoll from his right foot, followed by his stocking. The ankle is red and swelling quickly. Is he all right? asks Henry, who has pushed his way to the front. No, I am afraid not, Henry. Charlie, you have a nasty sprain. Rest and elevation are the only treatment. Charlie looks downcast. We've a match on Saturday, says Henry. Our first ever home game. He will be all right for that, won't he, Doc? Giancarlo stands and shares a look with his dear wife. I don't want to disappoint you, Henry, but no. He will need at least two weeks to recover. Silence spreads through the group. He's our best tackler, says Waterman finally. And he's the best at heading, says Christmas. Bucker, says Henry. Last week you would have
4: heard me chatting to Colin Payne, the uh, editor of YBR, Yellow, Black, and Red Fanzine, and also the Watford Treasury, the latest edition of the Watford Treasury uh, will be out next week. You can go to the WatfordTreasury.co.uk uh, and order your version. It is £9, but oh, it's worth it. It's 96 beautiful pages of Watford and Watford history. So go and order one of those now. But in the last edition of YBR, there was a, an, a one of those pieces you get in fanzines that A, made me laugh out loud, but also made you really reminisce about an old time. It was written by Ian Grant, who many of you will know from Be Sad many years ago, but of course Be Happy alongside Matt Rousen, the two websites which are always worth a dive, especially Be Sad. Go and enjoy yourself about the 1990s, which weren't the best thing, but just go and enjoy yourself on on besad.org. And a piece he wrote called There Used to Be
1: Moss. In the olden days, before the unpleasantness, We gathered at dinner parties in each other's houses, sometimes as many as eight or ten of us, and sipped educatedly on a crisp white wine our host had selected to go with the fish, might even have paid more than a tenner for, before remarking on their perfectly al dente cooking of the puy lentils, and how we don't usually like kale, but my goodness, this is delicious. I mean, I didn't. I got the invite and made up an excuse involving some very mild fibbing about the car having broken down, and a wildcat taxi driver strike. And so I was at home, watching Strictly, and trying not to nod off. Anyway, after everyone had cooed over the souffle, talk would inevitably turn to discussion of trends in stadium architecture. Entrances, exits, stairs, concourses, all of the latest hot developments. And, if you too hadn't found an excuse to be somewhere else, you'd find your mind drifting to a simpler time, when football grounds were altogether more natural, more organic. Not just metaphorically natural and organic. Not just the glorious rabbit warren of the East stand. Literally organic. There was a time when not a single one of us had ever stood on a concourse at a match. Shuffling about, while wondering whether to join the queue to pay two pounds for some hotish water, with a teaish bag and some milkish whiteness in it, we had not the imagination to even dream of such things. We had, however pissed into an overflowing gutter while staring absent-mindedly at moss growing on a crumbling brick wall. Almost every part of the stadium was in active decay, gradually being reclaimed by the elements, slowly returning to nature. Weeds growing through the cracks on the terraces, rust taking hold in exposed ironwork, brambles, moss, an occasional sapling. You used to be able to go mushroom picking in the Schrodel's toilets, or so they say. Compared to today's high-tech surfaces, even the pitch was a more organic living thing, or the bits of it that were actually green, at least. These days you could eat your dinner off most parts of a football stadium, were that not in contravention of Ground Regulation 34D. But is that really progress, you wonder, as the conversation continues around you? Have we not lost something of ourselves along the way? For we had become part of the ground, and the ground had become part of us. And it was a beautiful thing to behold, if you could manage to squint through the drizzle and the fag smoke. And then you remember that Heisel happened, and decay became disaster. And you snap out of your romantic daydreaming and ask someone to please pass the cheese board.
4: Thank you to Ian and Colin for that. Uh, and and it, what it was like to be at Vicarage Road and of course a project has just started 100 years at Vicarage Road Uh, it's, it's not for a couple of years but the the work has already started and I caught up with Jeff Wicken, who's part of the project to find out more about what is happening what will happen and what we can do as Watford fans to help out what is 100 years at the Vic all about
0: Well, it's about celebrating the fact that uh, in August 2022, Watford will have been playing at Vicarage Road for 100 years, And for that time, it's been not only a football stadium, but also a place of memories and belonging for the fans who've been going to games through all that period. Probably it's better than ever as a stadium. Well, certainly it's better than ever as a stadium now in terms of facilities. And what we want to do is capture people's experiences, tales and evoke uh, the memories that they have from having gone to games over that period of time. And perhaps their relatives, their fathers, their grandfathers, their mothers, their grandmothers. And there are tales to be told there and we want
4: to capture those. Is it, is it about physical, just purely physical things that you want? Or would my voice be telling you the story about it? Because my memory of going to the family enclosure and having my birthday party in the family room where I ended up playing football and the side of the picture of some of the, the youth team players... I, I can't physically show you that. How how can we capture that sort of, how can you capture my eighth birthday party? We'd
0: like people to get in touch. There's an email address that is vic100 at watfordfc.com. If you've got something that you'd like to uh, tell us or that you think we might be interested in, we'd like to hear from you. We've got interviewers lined up who uh, would uh, contact supporters and record interviews with people who've got tales to tell and we might transcribe those and use them in the book perhaps or we might use them in the museum exhibition and we're also thinking of creating an um, online audio archive of stories that uh, that people have so uh, that could be brought to life in, in, in all manner of ways in terms of the experiences that people may have had um, and some some ideas that we've had of if you have been a ball boy it would be quite interesting to talk to ball boys from different eras as well Or if you're a wheelchair user, how has provision for wheelchair users changed over the years? Uh, I remember the the original shelter being built around the southeast corner flag. What was that like to watch games from compared with uh, the current day? Some people remember the old supporters club building, which apparently was bought from the RAF at the end of the Second World War at a cost of £14 and served as the Supporters Club building for a great many years. What tales do you have of evenings in the Supporters Club, debauched or quiz nights or whatever they may have been?
4: So if I shared a memory, or even if I didn't share a memory, and I want to sort of to understand the history of Vicarage Road over the last 100 years...
0: Well, it will manifest itself through a book. There'll be video. There'll be a museum exhibition. Uh, there may be a stadium event, perhaps stadium tours. There'll be uh, merchandise, I'm sure. There's all sorts of things in the, the, the planning.
4: Is there anything particular you would like to find out more about you, you're aware of something that's happened, but you you sort of want to know something a bit more personal.
0: One of the things that I quite like the idea of is finding out unusual places from where people have watched games, possibly illicitly. Um, <laughs> someone did. Someone get, did get in touch and talked about the day a hole appeared in the pitch in a match against Grimsby Town in the 1960s and then added, which is quite a good story in itself, and then added that they were watching this from the water tower in the grounds of the hospital.
4: No. Yes. I suppose this is a little bit, you know, it sort of links quite nicely with the the Golden Memories project because you're, you're talking about a time, I'm 40 years old, uh, and I started going to Watford in the the, the mid to late eighties. You know that the history of Watford. I, I doubt we're going to find many people who were there for the first game. We might, you never know. Um, but in terms of like, is it is it about maybe some younger fans going to talk to their grandparents, their grandads, um, their uncles about going to Vicarage Road a, a little bit a long time ago?
0: Yes, that would be very very interesting if. if... They're able to relate tales that grandparents may have or parents may have who were watching a long time ago. I I shouldn't forget that that we're also interested in in artefacts from the stadium. Some people are believed to have letters from the Watford Observer clock that used to uh, be positioned on the top of the rookery. From the clock? Yes, apparently. <laughs> Some people may have items that were in the boardroom or the dressing rooms, oh, yeah, or you know, when the stands were being demolished and skips were outside the ground. Stuff was being thrown out.
4: What you're saying, Jeff, is actually what you want is you want people to admit they've stolen
0: items from Vicarage Road. <laughs> <laughs> The club doesn't want them back. I can okay, assure. fine. I can, uh, is there I can an say that for on certain. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and if people are really, really worried, they can just send us a picture anonymously. <laughs> uh-
4: <laughs> if I rifle through during the second lockdown, if I'm rifling through a box and I find something that I think will be worthwhile, where, where do I have to do? What is it I have to do as a Watford fan to help out this project, to celebrate? this fantastic achievement of 100 years at Vicus Road?
0: Contact us at vic100 at watfordfc.com. In the first instance, we'll get back to you. And um, if, if it's memories, then we'll arrange for someone to, to get in touch. Uh, Or maybe you're happy to email the memory to us to write it down, that would be absolutely fine as well. Uh, If it's artefacts, again, we'll be in touch. Or perhaps you could take an image of it yourself and send it to us. At this point, we're really trying to gather material, a sort of repository, if you will, of items and images that we can use for all these different purposes that we have in mind to celebrate the club's 100 years at Vicarage Road.
4: A Watford FC podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This is From the Rookery End. Nigel Pearson has been doing the rounds, uh, put his head above the parapet for the first time uh, since leaving Watford. And on The Athletic, uh, you can read uh, an interview that he did with senior writer Stuart James, uh, Stu to his friends, uh, that came out on Friday and Mike caught up with Stuart to find out how Nigel is doing.
5: Uh, so, Stu, you had the honour, the privilege of speaking to, to Nigel Pearson, someone we haven't heard from from a little while recently. So the first question, I guess...
3: How is he? It is quite a question, that. Normally, that'd be a straightforward answer, but he's not been very well (laughs) at all. I was aware just before the interview that he'd had COVID, but I didn't know sort of the gravity of it, really. And yeah, he's been struggling for a reasonable amount of time, actually. Well, he thinks he probably contracted COVID, as you said, a lot of people did at Watford around about March time, although, um, you know, he certainly wasn't aware of that at that point. But in June, he had a blood test when he found out then he'd previously had COVID. And obviously, for lots of people, it uh, can be a struggle for a couple of weeks, and then there are those who have. He was reluctant to use the the words "long COVID," but that's essentially what he's had. As he has he put it, a secondary phase of it, and and yeah, that's it, it. It sounded like that really kind of knocked him for six, and he's still on medication now. He has been for eight to ten weeks. He had some heart issues as well. Which he, you know, admitted really uh, sort of scared him and worried him, as they would with anyone. Really, he's a pretty fit guy, Nigel. He loves his his, his walks. You know, he's he's one of those who's always out being active. So um, I think it's been a pretty tough time for him. But he's, it, it, I got the feeling that he's coming out the other side now. That was certainly how it came across. I think what people probably didn't realise is that he was suffering with this while he was manager of or head coach of Watford and and just told only a, a, a small number of people and, and was trying to get through it best he could but he didn't sort of you know he wasn't trying to use that as an excuse for anything that happened at Watford he he gave the feeling that um, it hadn't unduly affected his work
5: and you mentioned in the piece on the athletic Stu that, that it wasn't just Covid he obviously had other issues he, he'd lost his his mum and his son was going through a tough time and his professional career as a, as a footballer so plenty going on and then of course there was the the icing on a rather unpleasant cake with Willoughbill of course getting getting sacked by Watford how did you sense his feelings towards towards Watford are at the moment
3: uh, I mean you're right when you reel off all those things it's been a, <laughs> a pretty awful year for him hasn't it really he's been you know the guy's been through the meal from certainly with his with his family etc but yeah in terms of Watford I mean the, the quotes were that you know they're pretty strong you know when, when you sort of read them but equally he's got no i felt it was really genuine when he was saying there was no bitterness towards Watford now there was no animosity he said he'd been on the phone to a couple of members of staff the night before we spoke he made it clear that he didn't have any issues with the technical director um Felipe he's he said we got on well at the time and we still speak now so from that point of view there's no kind of lasting ill feeling that said He's clearly very upset that he um, he was sacked and and certainly the circumstances around that, which which didn't sit very well with him in terms of how that happened. Um, You know, obviously, he he spoke about going in on that Sunday and then got to the training ground and the security guards wouldn't let him in. And uh, and I guess, you know, the clues are there, aren't they, then, you know, when it's when it's like that, you know, that things aren't too clever. So he rang shaky Craig Shakespeare and. And relayed that to him and said, uh, I think his words were, um, you know, I think we could be in trouble here. Um, and uh, and then he said, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. And when he called him back in 10 minutes, he'd had the confirmation that he'd been sacked. But there was other stuff going on in the background, but a sign of things. He, he got the impression that some of the players knew before what was happening, before he knew what was happening, um, which, which didn't sit well. And he was certainly very unhappy with the, with the statement that went out, which was um, brief. Should we, uh, should we say, um, you know, uh, so uh, sort of fifty words, and you know, Nigel Pearson's been relieved of his duties, and then quickly moved on uh, from there. So, yeah, that that side of things he was clearly upset with. But I think the thing is, as well, with Watford, you know, we we all know the the, the recent history in terms of the number of managers who have been hired and fired, and and Nigel was very open about that in terms of uh, he talked about the volatility of the club and and in the sense that. He knew what he was getting into when he was appointed in December, that there's every chance it was going to be a short term thing. And and that, you know, he he didn't try and get away from that at all. And and he accepted in that respect that, you know, perhaps he shouldn't have been surprised that he, he lost his job when he did.
5: Yeah, I mean, is, it's a little bit like opening old wounds for for us as Watford supporters here, Stu, because obviously it was a, a, a deeply disappointing season that ended ended badly for all in all involved, really. And and as Watford supporters reading the piece and 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 getting to grips with what what Nigel Pearson said, it, it's it's quite interesting, and we're starting to put the trying to put really the pieces together of what did actually happen, because obviously there are two sides to every story, and it's it, there's no way that anyone can feel anything other than sympathy. For all the the issues that that Nigel Pearson went through, both personally and and with his health, the terse termination statement was notable and noted by Watford supporters at the time, and and that I think did give rise to to sort of questions about had something gone on. And I, I work um, I work for a data gathering company at the weekends. I work for for Opta, and so I've, I've, I'm very lucky to have, to have been at the game since lockdown, and it was very very noticeable when Watford began again after lockdown that they looked out of it they looked disorganized disinterested um and the and the results were 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 ultimately very poor they were actually very poor um After the Liverpool game, the Liverpool game obviously grabbed the headlines, but then they went to Crystal Palace the week after and turned in a really disappointing performance. You you could argue if they'd won that game, any momentum after the the Liverpool game, they could have gone on and and secured um, safety. They didn't do that. And that was quite, it just felt telling to me that something was, was off. You could tell straight away the Leicester game was the first game back. The players came out in dribs and drabs. They weren't out coming out in a uniform line. And I know these sound like little things, but it felt very yeah, no, off bad. straight yeah. away. And, and I just wonder whether a combination of everything that was obviously going on in, in Nigel Pearson's world, whether that had impacted perhaps not in his performance, but just in relationships at, at, at the club. It, it felt wrong. I don't quite know how to put my, put my finger on it, and and the performances we we were, we carried on podcasting throughout lockdown, and and one thing that we were unified on was that if anyone could steer Watford through this period and get them galvanised uh, and ready to come out the other side, it would be Nigel Pearson and and Craig Shakespeare. You know their man management had started turning Watford season round they'd look better but there was there was none of that at all after after lockdown and of course everyone was living through difficult times.
3: It's really interesting listening to you say all that because from an outsider looking in and obviously I haven't seen Watford play on a on a on a regular basis you know I'm sort of I've dealt with Nigel a bit over the years uh, when he was at um, Leicester, certainly. And, but when I look at the results, it, it looks like you have that initial bounce, don't you? When you? Okay, you lose the Liverpool game, but you play okay. But then you have a really good run. And then I think I'm right in saying you, at some point you take something like five points from ten games and it, it, and it really does tail off. But then you also sort of look and think... OK, the 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 first half, I think in particular, if I remember against West Ham, was really awful and you had a slow start. The previous two games you won, I'm not sure you were wholly convincing in both of them, but it's quite hard to make sense of it because also then you look at the overall point total and see that, you know, he's averaging, um, you know, 1.25 points per game mm. in, in, I think, 35% win rate, which admittedly is coloured by obviously those early victories. and And I don't know, it feels like there's so many different sections to it. One thing I didn't, right in the piece. And uh, I hope no one kind of holds me, holds it against me, but because you, because I'm not obviously writing that interview from a purely Watford perspective. It's it, it's 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 um you know designed to appeal to all our readers, although obviously Watford supporters are naturally going to gravitate to it. And I don't know what it was, probably three thousand words, and I always write too many words anyway, and, and, and so there's a limit. Do you know what I mean? You're thinking how much can I use? But there was a little section where when he was talking about which which is interesting. This now tying into it. That's why I'm sorry, cut across you because it ties into, to exactly what you were saying. He said that what he felt when Watford came back after lockdown and and they were saying uh, when when, when the restart happened, he, he talked in terms, it suggested it impacted on Watford, he felt, more than some clubs. And he felt that support, particularly at Vicarage Road, which... He, he he said, you know, really galvanised the team, but also he didn't name individuals, but he suggested that some individuals really engaged and interacted with the crowd at home and, and it was a big thing for them. That Suddenly that wasn't there anymore and, and kind of, you know, impacted on performances. I don't know whether you can draw parallels with some other clubs. He didn't, but I'm just thinking on my feet now with, you know, you look at Burnley's form at the moment and Sheffield United, and I don't mean this... Disrespectfully, but some of the clubs where you know that that the, they're um, you know they're not at the elite end of the Premier League for want of a much better way of putting it, but where that home support can really be, and I've been to Vicarage Road and seen the place bouncing, and I know what it can be like. You know, you wonder what effect Turf Moore has on Burnley, Bramall Lane, with Sheffield United, and so he clearly sensed there was something missing in terms of um, not just the obvious connection between fans and supporters, but that it hit. Watford quite hard that and yes you you raise an interesting point when you now think about his health and everything else as much as Nigel says it didn't affect his work you know maybe it did he wasn't aware it did maybe people picked up on a slight difference in him I don't know but there are interesting things there to explore I guess the thing for me would be really interesting to know from you is whether you'd lost faith in his ability with two games to go to keep Watford up whether you think this is all hypothetical he could have done any better than what Watford did. I know there were two awful games, Man City, Arsenal on paper, yeah. but what, what do you think on that?
5: From a personal point of view, um, I think what, what happened was that the, the post-lockdown performances were, were almost exclusively dreadful. Um, and they they squeaked out two important wins against Norwich and Newcastle. The performances weren't great, but they did get the wins. And then there was the the, the do or die game at, at West Ham United, in which they were you know dead and buried within the first sort of half an hour. It was an absolutely shocking performance. With um, the defence was all at sea. Um, there was some sort of uh whispers of of a, of a half time bust up from my point of view you'd hope there probably was going into a a, <laughs> a win you know a do or die game 3 nil down but one of one of the interesting things I saw in your in your piece was he he did mention missing a couple of press conferences he didn't mention he actually missed the pre-season friendly against Brentford he wasn't there for that as well and right, okay. I, i'm I, i'm playing devil's advocate here and i'm going to put you in a really difficult spot and feel feel free just to to straight bat it back but <laughs> no, go t- on. How confident would you be that that is the the whole story? Obviously, and and I would just say I'd, I'd urge everyone to read it. It's a fascinating piece about a fascinating man. Whether you're a Watford supporter, obviously, it's going to pique your interest. But a football supporter, uh, anyone's going to enjoy it. It's, it's really interesting deep dive into where he's at at the moment. But I just wonder, as a Watford supporter, playing devil's advocate, whether there's more to that story. If you're reading between the lines, the the, the statement from Watford. The really, really poor form after after lockdown. Uh, the, sort of the, the rumblings about that West Ham game and hit and and, 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 and Nigel Pearson being notably absent from a from a pre season friendly and then a couple of, of press conferences might be reading too much into it. There's conspiracy theories all over the place, isn't there at the moment? And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. It, it's it's an interesting one as us for for Watford supporters to to try and piece together. And just it'd be interesting to get your take on whether we you feel like that, that the whole story is 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 what's in that piece. It's obviously
3: very hard to know because you're spot on you're only hearing it from one side I mean when you sort of put it to him and I said you know can you explain it in it and and you know in pretty sort of clear terms and in terms of you know his sacking and why it happened and he said no I can't and and he talked enough about that and another question as well to make me think well if you know something's happened and I always think if you're if you're going to go on the record and say you know I can't explain it um and then you leave yourself open to the truth eventually coming out at a later point, which often it will, then you, you risk looking pretty silly. Do you know what I mean? I think well, you, you may as well just say, if there was an instant, if there was a, some sort of trigger for this, then then, then 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 you know this is your opportunity. Because at some point further down the road, someone at Watford, whether it's the owner, technical director or whatever, um, or a player who witnessed something, they may well end up saying something. So I, I can only take him on face value on all of that in terms of what 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 he put across and when you reel off reel off all those things as you did you think of his health and you say missing that game which I wasn't aware of the one you mentioned in and and a few press conferences a few days not at work I guess you can start to see why some things might not have been ideal even if he maintains that it you know it he thinks it didn't affect his work and he said you know you cope as best you can in those situations I think the difficulty is and this is probably unfair in a way but the problem is, from an outsider looking in, the perception of Watford now mm-hmm. and and the feeling that, I would say strange things can happen, but the, but the managers have just got such a... It's, it's it's like at the moment it would it would never surprise me you know if if you were eighth in the table three four more games down the line if there was another change or something I, yeah I, no I don't, don't know. worry
5: Stuart just... wouldn't surprise us either <laughs> <laughs> no need <laughs> to tiptoe around it we we understand yeah. the the external perception of Watford and you know that's basically founded in in reality The the turnover is high and um, yeah they've acted um, pretty ruthlessly but like I say it's a really really good piece and it is well worth reading for Watford fans I'd urge them. Um, uh, urge them to read it and Stu look forward to reading your piece with um, Vladimir Ivich after he's relieved of his duties in, uh, <laughs> in six months' time.
1: From the rookery end.
4: Remember, if you want to read more of that from uh, from Stuart and all the writers, including Adam Lemertal, of course, who writes about Watford a lot, you can get a subscription for The Athletic by going to theathletic.com forward slash rookery end uh, where at the moment you get it for oh yes the princely sum of one pound a week very much worth it imagine paying for a newspaper that cheaply it would never happen and of course while you're there on the app you can listen to this here podcast with no adverts at all so go to theathletic.com forward slash rookery end to find out more about Stuart's chat with nigel pearson jason you saw the article uh, on the athletic uh, and you got to see uh, here what uh, Mike and Stu had to speak about. W- w- you, are you happier now? Having you, you heard from from Nigel, or does it, does it change how
2: you're looking at him or looking at the club? I don't think it's changed anything. I think it's it's quite nice to hear from Nigel and not hear him go into one about what happened because I think other characters would have done. Other characters would have kicked off, and he's been quite relaxed. And laid back about it when perhaps he he has earned the right to be a bit more aggressive because i mean i don't know about you but he effectively found out he was sacked by being refused entry to the training grounds that i mean that doesn't sit well with me at all and does seem a bit off and unfair and should have been handled better clearly he's aggrieved at the statement that was put out and again quite rightly so it was very brief and terse and Perhaps that comes from the way we do cycle our head coaches. <laughs> Who knows? It's another one, isn't it? Yeah, OK, right, let's just put something out quickly. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised. We, In his time at, at Watford, I thought he handled himself very well, very professionally, a very pleasant chap, whereas perhaps in the past his reputation has been slightly different. And it's just seemed to be a, a, a continuation of the respect that he has for, for others. He's not one to come out and start pointing fingers and, and throwing daggers. And perhaps the most surprising thing was the him talking about uh, Filippo Giraldi and the, the good relationship that he had with him and how yeah there they seems to be a, a friendship there as well as them being ex-colleagues.
5: There is, of course, a reason for him being so sanguine and uh, apparently understanding. I think we need to be grown up enough about this to recognise that he's obviously in the market for a new job. Um, he, you know he 's done rounds of interviews all over the all over the shop, and i think he 's trying to put himself back in the in the shop window and and someone who 's puced with rage at the the way he was treated by his former employer isn 't really going to um, uh, make him more attractive i don 't think to to anyone who might be be looking for for a new head coach and i think you 're right jason we took we did talk about the the some of the slightly less um impressive aspects of the of the situation and, and and like I said with Stu it's you cannot underestimate what a, what a dreadful time of it he had personally and and professionally and and also when I spoke to Stu I was sort of quite critical about Watford post lockdown but important to remember that all those players were coming out after lockdown as well so we're finding out new information about about Nigel Pearson and some of the stuff he was going through during that period well perhaps the same applied to a number of the players you know we don't know what was going on in their personal lives if people were able to see family if family were suffering if you know what what, whatever was going on during lockdown everyone it was an unprecedented time that everyone had to find a way to deal with and I'll say it again professional footballers are people too. So We as a podcast just just look at them and and see how they reacted on the pitch. But perhaps we didn't give enough credence to, to what happened during that period. But there is a little bit of me that just adding pieces together... Thinks we're not getting the whole side of the story, and that's not to belittle the the the, the problems that Nigel Pearson went through. I've uh, got every sympathy for 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 everything that, that he's talked about, and you know, from a personal point of view, I wouldn't wish that on on anyone. But it does feel like you know the nature of the statement, um, a couple of no shows, and obviously he was poorly. The state of the team, I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure, but it was fascinating to to talk to Stuart. And like like I said, it's I think it's well worth worth reading the article certainly to get to get Nigel Pearson's view on it and from what I gather what I can tell um, from social media, most Watford supporters wish wish him well, and, and and really, why would you why would you do anything other than that? I think, like you say, Chase, he held himself well. He did give us um, hope for where where it appeared there was none. He did get the team playing well for for a period. I guess it's a chapter we're gonna we're gonna close now and and move on because we've got a new head coach, and uh, and hopefully this one ends with a with a happier final final uh, denouement. Well,
4: it might not be over quite yet, Michael, because uh, <laughs> Nigel's due to be on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast uh, this week. Uh, you can download it on Tuesday morning uh, and see if we can find, well maybe maybe uh, Ornstein and Chapman can ask some questions. We we can find out a bit more information uh, about what was going on and why Watford finally did get relegated. Uh, that's available via your normal podcast app. Uh, And, of course, also advert-free on the Athletic app. We'll be back with another podcast next week for the international break. Don't you worry. We're going to sit down with Adam Leventhal and look back on the first 11 games of the season and and where we find ourselves in second place, but with many clubs very close behind us and only one, just a little bit in front.
5: Thank you very much, Michael. No worries. interesting that that's the first time in the entire podcast we've mentioned we're second in the table. Pretty, pretty good that. It's, nice. it's a nice feeling to go into the international break at the right end of the table. I think considering everything that's happened over, <clears throat> over lockdown, over summer, over the start of the season, uh, to go into, into the break sitting pretty. Fair play to, to Vlad and the boys. Come on you it.
2: Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Yeah, Mike's absolutely right. It's nice to go into an international break not expecting a head coach to be sacked, so we'll uh, bring
4: it on. <laughs> uh, yes. Thank you very much for listening. Do tell your friends uh, and make sure you follow us on social medias at Watford Podcast.
1: Come on, you all.